Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Okay, we got a bit of backstory on this current podcast episode. A few months ago, as some of you remember, I had Samuel say on the podcast, and Samuel takes a uh, more, I guess for lack of better terms, a more conservative approach to the race conversation. And um, he, we had a great conversation on the podcast, and uh, I got a lot of uh, interesting responses after that podcast. Some loved it, some hated it. Um, some, you know, were really provoked into thinking. And, um, one of the, one of the more common responses I got was, man, I would love to hear somebody who doesn't agree with Samuel on some or a lot of what he says to be able to, to respond in real time, um, on the podcast. And so that is where this podcast came in. I reached out some, to some friends of mine and a lot of people recommended that I get uh, Rasul Berry on the podcast to dialogue with Samuel Say. So that's where we are. This podcast did go very long. And as you will see, there's it could have been three times the length too. Like we actually, you could hear me at the end and you know, I had to kind of cut it short because I had uh, another podcast person waiting. Uh, and so I had to, I had to end the conversation, but I, you know, I, I, it was, it was, it's really helpful, I think, to get two people in conversation with each other to see where do they agree? Where do they disagree? Why do they disagree? Um, how are they defining their terms? Where are they um, maybe misunderstanding where each other is coming from? So I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Uh, Rasul serves as a teaching pastor at the Bridge Church in Brooklyn, and as a team member with his uh, Embark, a nonprofit focused on uh, millennials. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in African Studies and Sociology. Uh, Samuel Say, as you may recall from our previous podcast together, is uh, he was born in Ghana, moved to Canadian, uh, Canadian. He moved to Canada when he was young, so he's a Canadian citizen, and he speaks and writes a lot on racial, cultural, and political issues with a biblical theology, uh, in a, in an attempt to be quick to listen and slow to speak. So please welcome back to the show. Samuel Say, and uh, for the first time, the one and only, Rasul Berry. All right, hey friends, I'm here with uh, uh, Samuel Say and Rasul Berry. Thanks, guys, for joining me on the show, on the podcast. I explained a little bit in the intro, like how this podcast came about, and um, I'll just say it again. Like, I, I'm I'm really excited to have uh, specifically both of you guys here to to talk about, uh, well, how should Christians respond to racism, and especially when we disagree, and and that, you know. Um, that that is as we all know, as most people listening, and as you two know, that is not a simple question. How should we respond to? How should Christians respond to racism, even when we disagree? Kind of begs a question, like what is, what what is the thing called racism that we're even trying to figure out how to respond to? Um, but that yeah, this this raises all kinds of other sub issues. What is racism? How how pervasive is it? Um, how, uh, what about when different Christian communities see things differently, you know, um, on the nature of racism? H- how do we respond to that? <laughs> um, so thanks so much for being on the show, being willing to uh, dive into this topic. Why don't we start with you, Rasul? Um, uh, yeah, give us just your kind of overall thoughts on that question. How should Christians respond to racism? And especially when we disagree on maybe the nature of what racism is, even is. Yeah, I think uh, first it's important, th- and thanks, 
Preston for having us on. Um, I'm looking forward to the dialogue. I think we, you know, always have to start with definitions. I think especially uh, in our complex world uh, that we live in, um, we oftentimes talk past each other because we haven't really accurately or uh, defined or at least are on the same page about what we mean. And that's a harder task than it would seem on the surface, right? Um, you know, we're used to just Googling a definition and just going, okay, what is racism? Boom. Uh, and But with something like this, I would suggest that um, it's a bit more complicated than that because of the challenge of language to describe something that has been, I would say, a fundamental aspect of Western civilization for over 500 years. And so... Um, in doing that process, right, and just even in trying to explore, okay, how do I define this? Um, it's not easy because uh, of the various complexities involved with trying to describe culture, right? It's like saying, if someone were to say, well, define for me American culture or even what's culture? It's a hard, it's like on the one end, you know, like the, the old Supreme Court definition of pornography. I know it when I see it. Um, but on the other end, it's hard to actually describe um, in a sense. Um, so here I'm going to try to give some broad brushstrokes to, to kind of help us uh, conceptualize what we mean. And the first thing that's helpful in this aspect is an imagination. Um, William uh, Jennings, uh, professor at Yale, uh, wrote a book called The Christian Imagination. Mm -hmm. And he starts this concept of talking about, you know, race and even, I would say, racism or, or white supremacy as a diseased Christian ima imaginary. Mm -hmm. He said, if you go back to the beginning of the concept, what you see is a diseased way or a, a broken way at looking at cosmology at looking at, uh, you know, what Genesis 1 reveals is the Imago Dei, um, and a broken way at looking at our world. And at that imaginary, that way of understanding reality has permeated into the way that we see each other and the way that we see even ourselves. Mm -hmm. So specifically, uh, one of the key components of that is why did I start, you know, 500, 600 years ago? Well, it's because that's when we first start um, seeing people begin to explain uh, or try to justify um, uh, a global project of slavery. Now, the interesting thing is something like slavery has existed throughout human history. Uh, ethnic uh, tensions and, and, and prejudice or, you know, what James referred to as favoritism um, or, or bias. These things have existed throughout human history. But there was something unique about <clears throat> the particular project of what we call race that um, that that did something different, <clears throat> both in its excuse me, both in its scale and its substance and, and the claims that it was making. And in part, part of the reason why it's so unique is because it was actually fused with Christian theology from the beginning. Hmm. Right. And so um, Mark Charles, uh, the Native American uh, Christian scholar, uh, does a good job of talking about this when he just, when he talks about the doctrine of discovery in his book, Unsettling Truths. And what he says is the doctrine of discovery is a set of legal principles that govern the European colonizing. It was an official decree by a pope in the 15th century that basically gave the church's stamp of approval to invade, search out, capture, subdue and enslave all those not considered in Christendom. And it was like giving a theological cosign. 
at the same time, that same year in 1452, that that papal edict is um, is let out. There's also a uh, discussion we see from the first, you know, what Ibram Kendi and his book Stamp from the Beginning refers to as one of the first real instances that we have of a, a racist argument. Um, and that is uh, a, a writer who is trying to uh, justify the um, Portuguese slave trade, which was the first to explicitly focus on Africans. Uh, his name is Gomez Inz Zahara. He writes something called The Chronicle of the Discovery of the Conquest of Guinea. And in that, he makes the case that Africans are are beastly, bestial, and are that it is actually a Christian duty and a blessing to uh, to enslave them for their own good. And so, what you have there is the beginnings of something what we would call white supremacy, which uh, you know uh, my friend David Bailey refers to white supremacy as a spiritual her- heresy that is empowered financially, legislated politically, and affects us all socially. And, and, and basically, it's what Brian Stevenson refers to as the narrative of racial difference. White supremacy is a story that has been told and retold about human dignity that undermines uh, Genesis 126 and 127. Um, but the beautiful thing is that there is a, a better story that we see in the gospel. But the last thing I, I'll say on this, um, just to try to land the plane, is that um Trying to wrap our head around this in, 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 in a simple way is difficult, but, the, but, the, but one of the key things that I would argue is that when we talk about racism, we have to understand this particular uh, – even word racism first appears in the English language in 1902 by a gentleman named General Pratt who was saying that – describing it as a bad thing, but this also evokes the complexity of it. The same general who said that also said – that he opened up these Native American uh, boarding schools to strip Native Americans of their culture to, in his words, kill the Indian and save the man. Again, laced with a, a Christian ideology or a diseased Christian imaginary, to use Jennings' words. And so racism can be defined this way as a, the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy or caste system that privileges white people. And, and, and I think it's important to specify that when we talk about the, the unique context of race as a global project that's different than ethnocentrism, is different than uh, even favoritism and uh, aspects that we see in the Bible in terms of Jewish views of Samaritans because of its scope and its scale. So that's how I would define uh, racism, you know, simply it's, it's privilege plus uh, it's power plus bigotry. It's not just bigotry by itself. Wow, that's super helpful, uh, Russell. I, I've got a bunch of questions or stuff, but I, I you made it so clear. I don't. I, I'd rather just toss it over to Samuel and, and would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, uh, specifically, what anything Samuel or Russell said, or, or give your own uh, take on what racism is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very grateful. Uh, you guys are you guys are very uh, wise men, and for me to be part of this, I'm very grateful for that. I really am. Um, so I'll, I'll start off by saying, I think it's important to recognize that the debate over racism today is very different than what it's been for the, for the, for the large, um, part of Western society or just a large part of the talk about racism. What I mean by that is this throughout slavery and segregation, 
the question wasn't does racism exist or not or is it prevalent or not the question was is it good or not right in that um the the slave owners or, or people who were supporting slavery or people who supported segregation they were saying either slavery was good or bad that is not the sorry that is not the conversation today that is not the debate today the debate is not whether it's good or bad the debate is does it exist as in systemically or not or is it prevalent or not that's a very different kind of argument or debate and i think we need to admit that because it's very very crucial and helpful i say that because there are guys like me who would say of course racism is bad i don't know a single christian today a genuine christian who would say that racism is good i don't know anyone who would say that now of course because racism is a sin which is a very important thing that i think we need to we need to also uh, emphasize but because it's a sin you will have christians and of course non-christians who will commit racism nevertheless you won't find anyone that will say even though they might be guilty of the sin of racism that racism is good that it's okay the question is what is racism is it prevalent is it systemic mm-hmm. on top of that um since i've said sin racism is sin the bible then is sufficient in addressing it right because if it's sin the bible is very clear that everything the man of god needs to needs to know to be uh, to be equipped and competent in doing every good work which includes every good work against racism they will they have that through the scriptures so since racism is a sin we know the bible is sufficient in addressing that sin in addressing racism also if a you know the the general understanding of racism you know um um Rizzo Berry mentioned that it's prejudice plus power i would say that is that is outside of what the scriptures would say right that power does not have anything to do with it whatsoever if so it would create a major theological problem which we'll get to um um you know maybe later but what i will say is this it is indeed prejudice or to use a biblical word, this partiality racism is not necessarily new it is a it is a particular version of an old kind of sin a universal sin which is partiality or bias or prejudice um you know Rizul Berry also mentioned Ibram Ibram Kendi and he has a very different kind of sorry of definition than outside the bible um uh, has which is Here's what he says about what racism is. Ibram Kendi says racism is a marriage of racist policies and racist ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequities. Racial inequities is when two or more racial groups are not standing on approximately equal footing. And a racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. um Delgado Richard Delgado and his wife um Stefanchich define racism as the ordinary uh, not aberrational normal science 
the way usual society does business, the common everyday experience of most people in this country. Generally, what they're saying is racism is prevalent and systemic. It is the norm in, in, in Western society, including Canada and America. I'm Canadian, which is why I'm, I'm mentioning that point. Um, but the key thing here, I think, is, as Ibram Kendi says, racism is generally um, uh, evidenced by racial disparities or racial inequities, which, uh, as I'll mention later on, also creates major problems theologically or just logically, uh, uh, period. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Thank you for that. Um, I, man, um, I want to do the least amount of talking here, but I do want to get some, some clarification. So, um, Samuel, are you saying that how you define racism is that racism is always only something that an individual does toward another person? Like there's no racism should not be defined as something other than what it, a, a, the sin of an individual. Um, like, no. would you, would you ever describe a policy or, or, or even something like, um, you know, like Paul, Paul talks about, you know, the principalities and the authorities and, and in my reading of scripture, at least and most, I would say new Testament scholars that they would see sin as both kind of a, you know, um, something obviously something individuals do, but then there's, there is also this thing called structural, you know, um, structural systems that are also empowered by satanic forces or whatever that are also can be oppressive. Um, yeah. w- would you, yeah, and I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far off, but yeah, let me just go back to the original question. Like, it, yeah. it's, do you, do you see racism as only as something that an individual does towards someone else? No, because okay. there isn't a single sin that's individual, only individual, right? Every sin can be committed by individuals and groups. So, for example, um, you can have more than one person committing the same murder, right? So, um, you know, you, sometimes two people can murder. Um, and, and you see that even as you do with racism, right? You have history of people being lynched, right? You have a history of black people being lynched. Well, that was oftentimes a group of people murdering an individual, right? So uh, more than one person can be guilty of murder in the same way more than one person can be guilty of racism. So it includes the government, right? The government can, or politicians can create a bill or a law or can commit an action that would be racist. So it's not always individual. However, it is always intentional, right? Which is a key thing. I just think of like the women and children looking on because they saw in the newspaper, 19, whatever, 10 there's going to be a lynching tomorrow so all the you know townspeople show up and their moral conscience is so been warped that they see this lynching and it they're not complicit they're just showing up they're not well like are they (laughs) they're watching on you know but like is there something and this is kind of something back to rasul like is there something that in the history in the air in the psyche that has been built up to, that would allow a woman and her children to watch a public lynching and not even feel that kind of like some kind of, like their moral conscience is just so jaded. They're not doing anything to that person per se, but what is it that would allow that family to show up and watch this lynching without any kind of, I don't know. I, I, I'm doing, Rasul, I want to <laughs> pass it okay. back to you because I think I'm, 
I, I, am I bridging? Am I I'm yeah, trying to like yeah. toss well, it back I, to you? And, and again, this is why I started so broad as I did in talking about imagination and, and a diseased Christian imaginary, as Jennings says, because it's complex, just like to try to talk about culture and, and actually kind of nail it down is not as simple um, a, a direct line. And that's because there's a particular development uh, ideologically and practically as it worked out in society that you have to have both a sense of the um, what's happening in people's minds, like you were just saying, that makes it OK to, to bring your little children to go see black people uh, set on fire and hung from a tree. Like, how do you even get there? Right. Like that is so diabolical. How do you even understand that? Um, and, and I think diabolical is, is intentional because I agree with Samuel that um, the Bible is the foundation for understanding uh, our reality and our world. I think that, um, however, we probably disagree on all of what the Bible has to say about the topic, but I agree with him that that is the foundation of my framework. And what I mean by that is I think power the Bible has a lot to say about power, in, in particular, when it looks when I started, that's why I started in Genesis chapter one, because when it says that, um, you know, that God made humanity in his image, male and female, he made them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue, subdue it. That cultural mandate expresses itself in our dominion um, in our rule over the world, which immediately has that's when you start talking about creating structures and systems. Right. Like and you see this through line from the Tower of Babel, um, where there's this organized process and project uh, to the Egyptian slavery. God wasn't primarily saying, hey, all Egyptians change your hearts. I mean, that was a bonus. But he said, let my people go. There's a, a systemic structural problem that God chose to confront in Exodus uh, chapter three. And that, interestingly enough, resulted itself in a legal system in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that says this is how you ought to live and interact with each other for the process of human flourishing. And so even when we get to the, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom is one in which Jesus is revealed, not just as a personal savior and Lord, although he is that, but also as a king and priest and prophet that has social dynamics and that has a vision when he reveals himself in Luke chapter four. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, freedom to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind. There's a whole reversal of the social order that is supposed to redeem that which humanity has got so terribly wrong. And that even at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, we once again see Babylon portrayed as a whore, but not just in a sexual sense, but also as one that is um, has huge economic implications. Right. The nations are drunk on her wine and they and they and they trade in human beings as an expression of the wickedness that they are participating in. And so when I go back to this aspect of racism, you know, I say, yes, it is helpful to look at the sin of partiality as a as a as a as a, as a seed of this thought that, that that talks about the nature of human bias. But it um, but in the same way that I wouldn't say a doctor to a doctor, if someone if, if if I went to a doctor and I said, hey, um, are you qualified? And they go, well, the Bible is sufficient for everything that I need. So therefore, I don't. Uh, nah, I didn't never went to medical school because I can just treat you. It's like, well, wait a minute. I need you some more. If, I, if there was a bridge that somebody built and says, well, the Bible is 
I, I think that in human interaction, and this is where social sciences are helpful to help us understand and make sense of our world, to to flush out the biblical implications so in the same way that like what's hacking? What does the Bible have to say about you know hacking? I mean, I, I mean, you can you can mine in that and and and, and get some principles, but it's, it gets a little complicated, right? About whistleblowing, like there's things that God has given us as humans the ability to understand um, and and not just. Uh, reduce everything down to a sense in which there's no uh, taking into account social development and, and, and the realities of how do we make sense of our world in light of what we've seen around us. And one last thing I'm going to say, because I you know, is particularly when it comes to racism, this is a project. And the reason why I said power and, and as, as well as bias is because it was literally defined through the way that people organize each other, whether it was through slavery, whether it was through segregation, whether it was through these things. That was the primary em emphasis always was how do we uh, manage and limit what one group of people can do. And so that's when we say socially constructed, that means a society was constructed around this idea and that in order to dismantle it, you also have to challenge the very things in that society and structure that was built on it. Hello, friends. I want to invite you to come join us for our first ever Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon conference, March 31st to April 2nd. At this conference, we are going to be challenged to think like exiles about race, sexuality, gender, critical race theory, hell, transgender identities, climate change, creation, care, American politics, and what it means to love, love, love your Democratic and Republican neighbor as yourself. Different views will be presented. Everyone will be challenged to think critically, compassionately, and Christianly through all kinds of different topics. We've got loads of awesome speakers that are going to be there. Thabiti Anuboile, Chris Date, Derwin Gray, uh, Ellie Bonilla, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, Evan Wickham, uh, John Tyson, Tony Scarcello, Sandy Richter, Kimi Katiti, Heather Scriba, Street Hymns, and many others will be joining us for the first ever Theology in the Raw conference. All the information is in the show notes, or you can just go to pressandsprinkle.com to register. And I would recommend registering sooner than later. Space is limited. You can come and join us in person in Boise, or you can stream it online. Again, PressonSprinkle.com for all the info. In that society and structure that was built on it. Russell, can we, real quick, I'm going to pass it back to Samuel. Can you, for, for somebody that's very new to this conversation, not this one, mm -hmm. but just the race conversation, can, can you maybe summarize as concisely as you can where you so far agree with Samuel and where you see yourself disagreeing? Just so people sure. can get, yeah. I agree that the Bible is our, it has to be our foundational framework for understanding human interaction and, uh, and what a human is and what a human is supposed to do and supposed to be. I agree that racism is a sin. Um, I think that those things are true. I disagree with him that when he says that uh, if we look in the debate of the past, the question was as simple as what, you know, what people was, would, not, would assume that racism existed. I, that's a, I actually, that's just not historically true. Many of the most racist people claimed to not be racist while they were doing it. They gave other explanations, including I'm just following the Bible. If you look at the arguments towards segregation, if you look at the arguments towards slavery, they weren't making racial, in their minds, racist claims. So that the question of is this racist and not, like, is, was always an open question, has always been, not just now. Um, some people will say racism is good. You know, you ask a neo-Nazi or somebody, you know, or a Klan member, they're like, yes, um, it is good for us to, uh, now they might not say race, they might not call it racism what they do, but they 
will is basically express a racist ideology or imagination. Um, and so in that sense, I would say the Bible is 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 helpful for helping us understand the human heart and whatnot. But because a lot of these systems were developed, like I said, 600 years ago, when we come to trying to understand uh, the complexities of how segregation worked or how, you know, uh, you know, the, the system of white supremacy work, th- we always need to draw on, on upon, uh, you know, other insights and perspectives that um, just like we would in the medical profession or in the engineering profession. So I think that that's where we uh, maybe uh, disagree, um, you know, on there. But I but I also would say that um, it is a major theological problem. All right. Samuel, what do you what do you think? Yeah, um, I think. You know, I'll be honest, I think speaking of major theological problems, I think, um, you know, I was very, I, I intentionally, I think I was very precise in saying um, that racism is a sin, therefore, the Bible is sufficient in addressing it. The reason why I mentioned that is because Mr. Berry mentioned that, well, if we say that a Bible is, you know, all we need to address racism, well, then what about the medical, uh, medical, what about doctors? What about engineers? Well, the difference there is a doctor or engineer is not committing an act of sin or righteousness, right? The difference also, he mentioned, he mentioned something on, on, um, on uh, culture. He was saying it's hard to define culture. Well, that's true, but it's not hard to define sin because the Bible does, right? It's very clear. So I'll, I'll go back to um, you know, what, uh, what I'm referencing, which is, um, 2 Timothy 3, 16, verse 17, which is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If being anti-racist is a good work, the Bible says, God himself is saying that that, that the Christian can be complete in working against that. To be complete means you have to understand what, what, what racism is. The Bible gives you all you need. So it's not just foundational. Um, Mr. Berry has used that word a lot. It's not just foundational. It's sufficient. So that's not saying that we can't use that other... Person, I'm sorry. That's not saying that we can't use other... Um, you know, we can't borrow certain thinking. I'm a, I, I, I love reading. And of course... Right. In God's common grace, he is giving unbelievers um, insight on uh, on certain things. And that's fine. Nevertheless, the key thing is that when it comes to racism, the Bible is enough in addressing its sinfulness and how we can righteously address it. Um, On top of that. You know, if uh, give me one second, sorry. Yeah. If racism is a sin, which it is, as the Bible has said, we can trust that we can be complete in addressing, right? Meaning then that, um, you know, when you say something like prejudice plus power, well, biblically, you know, we don't, t- we, 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 the Bible does not tie power to prejudice. That's a foreign idea. That's a foreign idea that we're bringing in into defining what the Bible has already defined, which creates problems because, um, if that's the case, if we believe in the power is almost inherently a sin, right? That if power is almost oppress, oppressive on its own, then you have to believe that the, the Israelites were sinful for having power 
over the Gentiles um, through God, that the tribe of Judah in Israel were sinful for having power um, or, you know, or, or someone would say hegemony over, over Israel, or that Aaron and his descendants had power over the other Israelites for, um, by, being, by being made priest. Right. The word power in of itself is not sinful. Right. It's, it's you know, if if it's power, but tied then to or anything. Right. If it's if it's anything with sin is always evil. Nevertheless, when it comes to racism, it's either partiality. It's either sinful on its own or it's not. OK. Can, yeah. can I can I jump in? Yeah. Yeah. Go um, for it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, first, let me uh, go back to the word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may com- be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen and amen. I see the word profitable, though, not sufficient. He you're, you're adding a word that's not there. It's not saying that uh, it's that and by sufficient, what we mean is uh, that it is um, all that one could possibly benefit from or all that one could possibly need or, or gain value from comes from the scripture in order to experience those things. As you said, God has given us common grace. And that means that it is also profitable to read a commentary. It is also profitable for reproof to hear a sermon. It is also profitable for reproof to to read an encyclopedia or to journal. Like So I think there's a, a conflation that's happening uh, with this, this idea of profitable versus sufficient. Because the, the, the text that I'm reading says profitable, not that somehow appealing to any other source that is on God's green earth is somehow uh, undermining that. That's my first point. Secondly, um, what I would say is that not only is racism a sin, but it's also a structure. So I gave the example of um, of, of engineering and and, and and medical field, and and it's interesting because I you know I saw on your site that you know uh, you know yeah. You, very pro-life. So I think that the, the question of ethics um, is very much involved uh, with a doctor. And, and, and there are moral uh, questions that you would, would, would agree to. But at the same time, what I'm saying is that in the same way that if we our understandings of rape um, are, are very much informed by aspects of the power dynamic. It's not just about lust. It's about someone's desire to dominate other people. And so these fields that have helped us understand something like rape or that, like that, that doesn't that doesn't say, well, we're being less committed to a biblical framework by by borrowing insights, you know, from 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 those who study the human condition and understand why these things happen. If we're trying to get to why this is happening and what do we do about it, then then I think there is the Bible doesn't disagree that we ought to have um, the sense of, of of opportunity to speak into other things. And then the last part on that is when I say power and privilege, that has um, that is completely compatible with the scriptural um, take on, uh, on 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 race and racism or on anything else. And again, I go back to first of all the creation account where we're supposed to have dominion. You mentioned um, so what what I'm not saying you 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 talked about this aspect that if power is bad, that means the Israelites are bad. I never said power was bad. Power is like a knife, right? It's it depends on how you use it. Um, but what I am saying is that there is a particular type of um, of, of, dom- of, of domination, a particular type of exertion of, 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 of a human um, 
autonomy that is involved when you have power that it, that that takes it to a different place. And I give you the example of the Book of Kings. Go First Kings, Second Kings. And why is it that it's spending so much time on the kings of uh, of the monarchs of Israel? And 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 guess what? When they were wicked, like you know Manasseh, then you saw that impact the entire nation. When they were godly, like Asa. It impacted the entire nation. And so there is a very much an awareness of the fact that to whom much is given, much is required. And in Deuteronomy 22, for example, there's this aspect of a sin of omission that if I that stealing is not just a matter of taking my neighbor's ox, taking my neighbor's you know land, but it's also not helping if I see his ox struggling or in a ditch and I do nothing about it and I have the power to do something about it, then I am also in sin. And so if we go and lastly, I'll just look at the Jubilee. Um, There's this aspect that that's a structural acknowledgement of the fact that humans have a tendency to exploit other humans. And so God put in his law a vision and a framework by which people were supposed to that was supposed to get adjusted and, and get corrected. And so I think that there's very much an aspect of saying, yeah, racism is sin, but it's also just historically speaking, a, a social phenomenon. How can you deny the fact that it was a racially structured system that also had to be confronted by legal remedies and not just a uh, change of heart from a sermon? I want to real quick. So I I I see us understanding different when it comes to the authority, nature quote, sufficiency of scripture, we're, gonna, we're kind of seeing it slightly differently here. I, I feel like if we could spend the rest of the time just <laughs> going back and forth on that, I, I don't, unless you guys disagree, I, it, I, I think that that might be getting lost in the weeds a little bit. And I also hear Rasul, you saying that like, y- y- you don't even, I mean, the, your, your understanding of racism, you actually see in scripture and, and you've given evidences for it. So even if we do define sufficiency in the way that Samuel does, your case doesn't seem to be any different because you're, yeah, you're going yeah, to scripture to look at some of these yeah, things. Um, I, I just, I just went, so I'll let Sam, go, that, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I definitely do not want to deviate from the point, but I think since the whole, the, you know, the, the, we're, 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 we want to address what is the Christian response to racism. Yeah. Well then that means what is the biblical response to racism? Therefore, we need to have a, a good theology on how we yeah. can address racism as Christians, which is why I'm addressing the text. Now, you know, and I will not, I don't think I need to spend too much time on this point, but what I will say is this. Um, I find it interesting that Mr. Berry was focusing on the word profitable. That's not what I was emphasizing at all, actually. No, I was emphasizing. emphasizing. I, was, I was saying that profitable is there, not sufficient. Sure, but I never said profitable was the reason. So my, my exactly. word for... If, if I can please I'm finish. Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, the reason why I am mentioning the word sufficient is because, as I was saying, of the word complete, right? That the scriptures, right? The, the Bible is saying that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man may be complete. The complete part is what I'm addressing here. That we have a completion of knowledge and understanding and being equipped for every good work, including against racism. So like I said, I'm not saying we cannot learn from non-Christians. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if we are going to be addressing the issue of racism, it is important, it is crucial that we agree that if I am simply working 
with what the scriptures have given me, if I'm just working with what the Bible has given me, I can I am I have a sufficiency, I have a completion. I can have a completion in understanding this issue without having to learn from critical race theorists like Ibrahim Kendi or anyone else. Would we agree with that? Well, no. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was I was asking the question if we think the Bible may, well, gives us a completion of what we need to know on racism, and you were saying no. No. Well, well, can, can I? Can I? I just want to point out as a as a <laughs> as a Bible guy, like we. I mean, Samuel or all of us wouldn't have been able to even read that verse were it not for people studying archaeology, doing text criticism, the printing press invention, um, studying other cognate languages. I mean, um, looking at Greek literature like that <laughs> to even have the ability to read that verse requires a lot more complexity of other knowledge bases, disciplines going going into it. Um, but I. I Having been nurtured in John MacArthur's school and the sufficiency of scripture and understanding kind of that, I, I, I do understand, I, I feel like if we just, I feel like we're going to keep missing each other if we keep kind of sure. drilling me, down just, into that. And again, that, Rasul, I hear you saying like, no, I am going to scripture. Like, I, I'm, right. I'm going to scripture me, for me, my... Yeah, I, 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 I can feel us getting bogged down too. And sometimes it's, just, it's better to move on. So I'll, I'll just say this since I said no, what I meant by no. What I meant by no is I think we, we have a different difference of agreement of what that phrase that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work means. So I would say that, um, first of all, when it says that the man of God, right, this is we start getting into the, the Greek. And then and it was like, is it saying um, so that all that the man of God needs is the is, is the scripture to, to be mature, mature, or is it saying that the scripture is profitable and, and it's, it's in all these ways to contribute to the person uh, becoming uh, complete or mature? And and that's a that, that, that's a you know, but and my my point to that would go, I disagree with the perception that says that yes, it's saying all you need is a Bible in yourself. Because the rest of the scriptures clearly show the importance of preaching, um, teaching, community, uh, the importance of education, like you said, in other aspects. I don't I don't think that, um, you know, but but ironically, even as I say that, I still make the case, as you as you said, if someone properly understood and and, 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 and uh, the Bible story, they would also still understand that racism is about structure, structural inequality and about sin. Um, and individual sin, individual sin, corporate sin, as well as uh, structural uh, inequalities that exist in systems. I think that all of that is there in the text anyway. But I'm just also making the point that um, that I don't think that that is saying that the use or leaning to for insights into this topic is off limits um, from other sources. And I think that's important because historically that has been I wrote an article called Uncritical Race Theory, um, where I, I kind of tracked the thought patterns of, I was curious about how Christians have responded to disagreements about uh, the issue of race throughout uh, American history. And I looked at the Civil War as a theological crisis by Mark Knoll. And what I found was that uh, Christian abolitionists were being accused of following the culture and not following the Bible. They were being accused 
of not making sense of the just common sense uh, text of the word and, and depending on social theories. If you go forward to the civil rights era, it was even more explicit where uh, you had people like Bob Jones and Dr. G.T. Gillespie, two prominent evangelical Christian leaders, accusing uh, people like Dr. King and other Christian civil rights leaders of being more beholden to Karl Marx and communism than they were to the scriptures. And that um, even Billy Graham, when he came back from Africa to uh, articulate that, was had kind of fallen away um, in, in their minds and their and ideas. So this is a, so so I'm, I think it's important. And, this, and when we talk about how we address this, I have found historically the tendency of those who don't agree that these social issues um, are as big as other Christians say or as prominent have tended to undermine or challenge or or, or to uh, somehow imply that we have abandoned or have lessened our commitment to the text and have instead borrowed upon secular, worldly, godless ideologies in order to make the case that we're making. And I just think that that's an important um, idea to say, hey, we can disagree on how we understand the text, but, but we have to make sure that we are not just diminishing or somehow suggesting that um, someone is less committed to the Bible because we have a different vision or understanding of how the Bible speaks to this issue. The 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 problem though, and I, and I and I the reason why I we, we can move on, but I think it's important that I say this. Yeah. The reason why I mention that is that is you know that is a crucial 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 text in informing our theology, and if we disagree on the, the the you know that text but especially the sufficiency of the scriptures in addressing these issues right no matter how you might see it, if we disagree on that that creates problems going forward and i wanted to i wanted to express whether we agreed on that or we disagree on that we can move on but i think it's very important that we address that do you you know you mentioned that um in the bible well before you mentioned that you you, you were saying that uh, historically I guess you were saying people like myself have been undermining the work of uh, of other Christians in addressing the issue of racism and social issues and things like that. Well, again, we can move on, but the reason why I think it's very important, you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., right? You mentioned um, his work on the civil rights movement, and you mentioned that um, some were suggesting, I think you were saying, that he was less of a Christian because of some of the work that he was doing. They were calling well, him a Marxist. Well, okay, well... Well, I'll have my thoughts on that too, but before we get to that, here's why it's important. Would you agree that Martin Luther King Jr., because he rejected, this is why I'm saying this, he was rejecting certain parts of the scriptures because he rejected, for example, the divinity and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not a Christian. Would you agree first, with that? First of all, I don't have any evidence to, to support that claim. Um, so I've not seen that. I've seen sermons where he's preached uh, on, the, on the resurrection of Christ. So I, I, I Sorry, need the physical say, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. I'm, that's what I'm talking about the physical <laughs> resurrection. I'm Sorry, just saying. So I, I'm just saying I can't agree with the premise of your question because I've not seen anything that would suggest that King rejected the physical resurrection of Jesus. So, so I'm just saying I can't. So in some of his letters, he does say that. But fine, even if you're not familiar with that, which is okay. If he did say that, would you agree that he was not a Christian? Well, let me ask you, would you agree that somebody who um, whipped, tortured, raped and um, and kidnapped people all according to First Corinthians, chapter six, uh, would say that that person would not enter to inherit the kingdom 
would you agree that that person is not a Christian, even if they had tight theology on as we define, you know, uh, tight theology? If he was not if, if that person was not in repentance, then they would then they were, they were not a Christian. Now, that deals then with a very specific issue. I don't know their life. I don't know their repentance. But if somebody affirms the scriptures, if someone affirms the gospel, believes in the gospel. Right. We know that people can live in sin. We just can still live in sin. But it's one thing. We all live in sin. But we still not. But some of us, by the grace of God, believe in the gospel. Right. right. And Martin Luther King Jr. was someone who was living in sin or was just a sinner and did not believe the gospel. Well, right again, now, I, I, I reject that characterization of Dr. Okay. King. All right. I, well, I, don't, I feel like we can, we can move on. I think it's important that I, I explain why this is very important. Well, not, not I don't think a whole lot hinges on the regenerate state of Martin Luther King, does it? I mean, that, none of your cases kind of rests on that, right? No, it, it doesn't. The reason why I mention that is because of our our our, um, our different our, our different point of views on again whether whether the Bible is sufficient or not. And I think since he had mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. and how historically Christians have been addressing guys like him, that was important that I explain why it does matter on where we fall into how we understand Second Timothy three sixteen. I don't I don't follow why that matters in a conversation about race, but that we can move on. Can I okay. he, here's the the big question I had ever since Rasul you started is let's just in, in my mind, I'm going to let's just assume everything your, your whole backstory, which I don't I can't kind of kind of like you and Martin Luther guy. I'm like, I, maybe that's true. Sure. Maybe not. It's, it's outside of my field. Let's assume um, that racism was so deeply embedded in the systems in America wedded with Christianity for the last several hundred years. The biggest question I have is, do you still see that today? Like post the civil rights era, um, all the way into today, like some people are going to say, you know, I I think um, D'Angelo even said like, it's even worse today than it was then because it's, it's subtle. It's embedded in the system. It's not explicit. Like it's even, it's almost better when it's like written in the code, you know, Jim Crow laws or whatever. And now it's so deep in the system that it's almost worse today. And obviously you have socioeconomic disparities that, I mean, according to who you read, are even worse today than they were you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, how complicit is the church today in these yeah. inequities, if we're even going to say there are inequities or whatever? So that's my biggest question is where, where we stand today. Um, right. Where are we in relation to where the church was, say, a hundred years ago? Um, is that fair? To, I don't, I, again, I, I don't. I, I want you guys to lead to the conversation, but I feel like that's that is kind of a big question that seems to be in people's minds yeah, today. And, and, right, and I, and I think uh, that's where an understanding of racism is not just uh, individuals deciding to be prejudiced toward other people and be mean to them. Is uh, is that that idea is not a sufficient understanding of what racism is and how it's worked, because if you understand from the beginning and I'll just try to speed through this quickly for the sake of time, I'll just give an example. Uh, Elizabeth Key Greenstead in 1656. She was one of the first black people in the 13 colonies to sue for uh, her freedom from slavery. And she won. She was biracial. Um, you know, her uh, father was white. Her, her, her mother was a black enslaved person. She won her freedom and that of her infant son in the colony of Virginia. Her, key, her, her, her basic premise was based on two things. One, the fact that her father was an Englishman. And so based on that, according to English law, she was a free person. But then also because she had been baptized um, in the Church of England um, as a Christian. And according to English common law, Christians could not be hold, hold as slaves. 
Well, that sounds like a nice story until you understand that the reaction to that was that the Virginia House of Burgesses passed a law in 1662 establishing that the social status of children born in the colony would be based on their mothers, not their fathers, which is different from English common law. And that also that a baptism and becoming a Christian would not would uh, cause someone to be free, which was also against common law. And so when we start to look at the institutions, right? And if you go fast forward to the Naturalization Act of 1790, this is the when Congress first comes into power and they limited who was a naturalized citizen to free white persons of good character, excluding Native Americans, indentured servants, slaves, and black people from the ability to be citizens, to vote, to own land, to do process under the law and the criminal justice system, to start businesses, to be on a jury, and to marry as they please, who they please. Why do I bring that up in 1790? Because what we're talking about is the very first law that establishes citizenship that the Congress decides does so in a way that excludes uh, people of color and particularly black people from the idea of citizenship. And so what you have in the years that follow, whether you go Dred Scott case, which can, you know, which said black people can't sue, Plessy versus Ferguson, which said that separate but equal was allowed. So then when you fast forward all the way to Brown versus Board of Education, and you go 1954, Okay, now they strike down separate but equal. But then you go, well, so that's the end of the story, right? No, the Little Rock Nine happens in 1957, where the federal government has to come in and escort little children into school. The Greenboro sit-ins happens in 1960. The, you know, the, 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 the civil rights protests in Birmingham, why? So the question is, if the law was sufficient in 1954, why are we still holding sit-ins and having the federal you know, troops come in to guide people years later. Well, what that suggests is that the law was never enough because there was always going to be a way, because it wasn't that soon as all the you know, races said, oh man, Brown versus Board, oh well, then that means we just got to give up our racist ways and, and, and just and welcome <laughs> them into our systems. No, there was this chess match that continued to go that uh, that wanted to avoid those illegal implications. And so now to today, right? And Long Island, I I'm, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn, New York right now. 2019, uh, a study was done um, by Newsday and they found widespread, separate and unequal treatment of potential minority home buyers in, in, in minority communities on Long Island. Half the black people that uh, were not shown the same houses, weren't given the same opportunities um, as the white folks that you know were looking for homes in Long Island, right? When I look at uh, you know busing, I mean, this is you know when you start uh, talking about some of these things, 1974, 1976, busing in Boston is still an issue 20 years afterwards, and so. Yes, we still have it, but it's complex and it changes. I'm not saying that in every situation, everything is, is bad or is good. In some ways, we, we've seen the unintended consequences of integration was the erosion of the black community because folks, you know, kind of scattered. And so when they had options to live, you don't have the same robust inter, you know, multi-class communities that you once did at the same time. Um, you, you, you do have the fact that people can. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I wouldn't have been able to go there 100 years ago if, you know, under the, the, the rules that or even 50 years ago. And so, um, yeah, there's those things. But yet we still have the fact that there's more segregation in schools today than there were in many cases 50 years ago. And, and you look at a lot of the other indicators that show not just outcomes, not just outcomes, mm -hmm. but intent and, and, and strategic, like like in the context of that Long Island housing study, these weren't just 
uh, omissions like, oh, we didn't know we were doing it. These were in, intentional efforts to um, to have black people not be in these communities. And so I, I think in some ways, yes, there is more of an insidious nature um, now than there was because uh, when it was the law, people it was easier to see and then challenge when it's when it's not as explicit and clear those biases. Because remember, the folks who were being taught this, you know, years before, they still alive. Like they 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 still you know, there's people who were beating John Lewis's head in at the Edmund Pettus Bridge are still alive. They didn't just teach their kids. Well, you know, actually, we should allow black people to vote because you know that's the right thing to do because they passed the Voting Rights you know Act of 19 you know 65. But that they probably still taught racist ideas and, and those structures are still supported in our society. And so um, some of them, have, we've seen progress. Of course we have. Um, but yet there's still a long way to go. So can I just as tightly as I can summarize y- yet? And you're not drinking a raw egg, are you? Is that <laughs> are you getting all rocky? on? That's a lemon. I was like, dude, this guy's going <laughs> to. So, so I hear you saying that, well, just what you just ended with, like, yes, of course, there's been progress. We don't have public lynchings. We don't have. It written, you know, uh, uh, Jim Crow laws, whatever. But it is, it's a. How about this? Um, we haven't had as much progress as, if I could put words in your mouth, as many say, white people or Christians, conservatives, think we have made. Is would that be fair? I would say fair? not only that. I, I would say not only that. There's always a backlash to the progress that you see. Okay. And so okay. there is a uh, revulsion. Uh, and this is where the imagination going back again, we have to understand the diseased imaginary mm-hmm. and understand that we're not just talking about behaviors, but we're talking about an ideology of white supremacy that has been entrenched in the culture through media. You know what I mean? Through uh, the stories that are told about Africa. You know, my brother Samuel, you know, I, I heard you earlier, you know, in your podcast talk about the horrible things you experienced in your school. Um, and, and, and I've seen that. I've seen, and I've seen the internalized racism of black people who were taught, you know, that, you know, Africa was not, you know, was a, not a, de- a developed place and people had tales. And, I've, and I saw when I was in middle school, you know, my African colleagues mistreated, um, you know, because of that by black people. And so and that's because you, anybody can internalize racism. It's air that we breathe, you know what I mean, in, in a certain way. And so. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it, it, that still those narratives still exist and, uh, and need to be challenged. All right, Samuel, what are your thoughts on all that? Hey, friends, hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. And if you are enjoying this conversation and others like it, would you consider supporting the Theology in the Raw ministry by going to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to lots of different kinds of premium content like monthly Patreon-only podcasts and blogs and Q&A sessions. Again, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw or all the info is in the show notes. All right, Samuel, what are your thoughts on all that? Uh, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. And if you want to single um, out maybe one or two, just so we have maybe clarity or something or, or yeah, yeah, however you want to respond. From what I understand, uh, with all due respect, I don't think you answered the question, at least from what I understood, um, you, for, that you were asking, um, or particularly, you know, he mentioned his, look, historically, we know, we know that. Unfortunately, America, and in my context, Canada, has been historically racist against black people or non-white people. We, we, we know that. But, you know, I'm trying to take, there's a lot I would want to say, but I'm trying to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, t- and take your time. But yeah. Yeah. But 
what what I'm still not hearing is okay since the topic today is about what is our response to racism now that that that, that therefore means okay how do we think about racism historically but also how do we understand racism today what is our response to racism today therefore what is the racism today right and especially it seems like what uh, mr berry has been saying he's also addressing particularly the, the idea of systemic racism. Well, okay, where is that today? And I just, I when he a, was, sorry? I gave an example when yeah, I mentioned the, 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 the Long Island housing situation. That was just one. Yeah, so in that one, you were mentioning disparities. You were using a disparity as an example of, you, you did not give, so you well, no, he, mentioned, for example. He did say the intention, like you said, it wasn't just, you said it, I mean, I said in passing that uh, you're not just talking about disparities and outcome, but there was actually intention in the people that were shown certain houses and not other houses. If, is that? Where would be the, where, where would be the, what would be the um, uh, evidence that it was intentionally because they were black? Well, they have the video uh, footage of that they did. It was a, a news team um, uh, called Newsday. You can go projects.newsday.com forward slash Long Island, just Google it, Long Island housing discrimination. And they have the video evidence of, because they were secretly taping the encounters with the real estate agents. And now I don't get too bothered down, but in this, in, in, in this occasion, this incident, what was, what was happening that revealed that it was the way they were being pre- prejudiced against them? When they would send a black family or an Asian or Latin family to go to connect with uh, real estate agents. They would not show them certain homes in certain communities. They would give excuses as to why, like the, the house is sold or I need to have a pre-approval or something. But then when they had a white family come in and look at the house, none of those expectations or things, and they were shown more houses and the houses, and they were much more eager and enthusiastic about getting them into those houses and in a way that was very strikingly, obviously discriminatory. So I, the reason why I ask that is because I'm, I'm not familiar with that story, but it would not surprise me if that was the case, right? As I said, racism does exist. But the key thing, the reason why I wanted to um, push back on that a little bit is I want to understand what was the basis for why you were saying or why um, you know people in New York were saying it was racist, right? So if it wasn't that they were being intentionally racist, that's not I've I've. Just this year, I've received several cases of racism against me. So it does not surprise me that that would still be the case. The question, though, is also, okay, that how prevalent is it, right? Because that's what he was really asking. That we know that historically that racism has been there. We know that it's still there today. But how prevalent is it today? Now, when you were broadly mentioning that, I didn't hear anything that would say that would give me an understanding of how prevalent you think it is. And when it came to that, it seemed that generally what you were suggesting was, disparities that you were mentioning the general idea of disparities across America racially as evidence of racism would that be the, would that be the case no I was saying racism was evidence of racism okay but what but how is it prevalent like moving from that one example to like is that one example characteristic of many 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 other cases is that what so you're yeah, asking and, Sam or, or, so if, if I could say this so what I mean what I, what I mean is this slavery was was wide across America and Canada. Segregation was not, of course, across all of America, but it was prevalent across mm-hmm. all the South, right? So what evidence do we have um, today to say that racism 
is or is so, systemically still sure. true well, or prevalent. Sure. And I mean, when I say systemic, it's probably another word we need yeah. to define. <laughs> um, and, and, and again, it goes back to an aspect of um, it, when I say system. Right. It is it's not just a matter of pre- prejudice. Right. Uh, someone walks across the street when they see you and they clutch their purse. Right. Like that's a you know. That's something that may be. And I know I remember in your story, you kind of talked about how that may or may not be because of race. But let's just say you just know, like the person said out loud, oh, it's a black person. And so I'm going to walk across the street. Right. Like that's one thing. But when I talk about racism in terms of power and privilege and and how it's been like historically manifest in the United States of America, in the West in general, there are laws. We can look at, you know, even the immigration laws. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, being a child of immigrants. Right. And and, uh, you know, looking in Canada, you know, like that until they changed their racist laws. You know what I mean? They were deliberately um, up until 1971 when they changed the law, they were deliberately ups- tr- preventing people from other ethnic groups that they did not want um, to become, you know, there. And oftentimes they would use non-explicitly racist uh, uh, terms to do it. So, for example, they they decided um, you you can't uh, you have to go from a direct shipping uh, port to get into Canada. You can't stop off someplace else. Well, a lot of the Japanese and Chinese, you know, migrant workers were were coming in from Hawaii. So there so so that was a way of them thinking through how do we avoid having this group of people that we deem un, you know, fit to live here without us saying explicitly, okay, we don't want Chinese or, or Japanese. But but to, to, to bring it to today, because you asked about today, um I think if you don't sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you know, uh the the aspect you can look at. So in terms of the particular, they 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 coordinated more than 12,000 fair housing tests. So this was not just like a handful of people. Twelve thousand is a lot of tests to get to as, as, a, as a test control in this in one of the most populous, you know, the most populous area in the country um, and also one that's in the north. And, you know, kind of likes to style itself as progressive. So if that's happening there, you can only imagine what's happening in a place like Mississippi or Alabama. Um, but beyond that, you can look at, um, for instance, uh, they another Harvard uh, Business School did a, um, a test on, um, you know, uh, resumes. And they looked at uh, black people who had decided to um, kind of unracialize their resume. So if their name was something like Rasul, uh, they maybe to change it to Russell, right? R U S S E L to throw people off the trail that this was indeed a black person. Uh, scrubbed any memories, uh, any references to HBCUs, and what they found is that they were more likely to be hired. Same resume as somebody, you know, with the you know Russell Berry and Russell Berry, but different outcomes. So, so we can look at this in a medical profession. There's been study after study done to show that um, black people are not given the same type of pain treatment um, because there's beliefs that from all the way back from slavery that they, we can tolerate more pain. Um, there's medical outcomes um, that uh, that are that are that show that disparity, um, but not just the disparity, but also the the fact that there are interventions that are not happening in one case that are happening in the other case. And so um, just about in every aspect uh, that we can look at, um, you can see that these disparities as a result of processes exist. But I will say it is I will admit the fact that it is challenging to sometimes point to those things because they are people have become really adept at hiding it. Okay, so um, 
What you mentioned earlier, about, and I'm grateful that you mentioned Canada's uh, history of uh, racist immigration uh, laws. Um, but as as you would know, um, the, we we know it was racist, not just because of their policy, because they said you said that they didn't they didn't say that they were being racist, but they actually said they did not want Japanese Americans and Asian Americans coming into Canada. They did say that. This so, is a this is not, a historical reiteration. This, this is law. If I could please, please finish, this is in the historical record. They did say that. So. What they did after the fact was just in line um, uh, with what they had said they wanted to do already. So we know they were being racist there. Um, but, you know, afterward, you yourself mentioned disparities. That seems to be the main, the main um, evidence that keeps coming up when it comes to evidence of, of supposed systemic racism. But here's what I would say. Um, just an example of why that's a big problem. In America... I'll use only American numbers here. 93% of the, of the people in jail are men. 78% of homicide victims are men. Men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women. The average man will die five years younger than an average woman. Men are two times more likely to die from COVID than women. Um, last year, police officers killed a thousand people. Um, or only, only about 100 of them were unarmed. Only, relatively. But... Um, but 36 people, 36 people out of the 1,000 were female. That, that means that 96% um, of the people who were killed by cops are men. 78% of homeless people are mm -hmm. men. High school boys are more likely to drop out of high school than women. Is this evidence of systemic mm -hmm. sexism against men? Well, well, of course not. Of well, course I'm not. Sorry. Yeah, I was so <laughs> yeah. So, so I think when we keep using disparities, disparities could be a sign of racism. It could be a sign of systemic racism, but that does not prove racism. Let me let me just let me just say again in the in the exa two examples I gave, the housing example. There's evidence. There's video you can watch. In the resume example from Harvard Business School, there is a actual experiment that was done where folks had two different names and something and, and their job outcomes were related in terms of with the same resume. Right. So that's not just a question about outcome. But when you have an entire, you know, uh, study done to show uh, the difference in how in potential employers respond to someone. And the only thing you change is you, you know, you change their name and you deracialize the resume. That is evidence of not just an outcome difference, but of, of a process difference, of a systemic difference um, in these things. And you can go down the list in the same way with, um, you know, uh, segregation in schools and how we even got to the, you know, place that we did where, you know, these things didn't just happen. We don't just go and look at. And so this is where, I, like I said, the, 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 the imaginary, the, the idea of white supremacy, you have to tie that together with the idea of understanding these things and then just look at the legal trail and just follow, you know, that, you know, and just connect the dots. I mean, even if we're just dealing with, um, shoot, like we were just talking about immigration reform and, and laws like so that just changed in the last 30 some years. And it's still in terms of the books. But when I went back to Canada again, and I'm not going to begin to try to lecture you about your home country. But what I will say is that looked at each of the immigration acts. There were some that were explicitly saying we don't want Chinese people. There were others 
that were more circumspect and nuanced. And so did you to have to read in between the lines to see who they were trying to exclude. And, and that they and, and so that's just what I'm saying is how sometimes these systemic issues. Work. So I'm, I'm hearing because um, I just got done with Kendi's book and he definitely kind of just um, disparities in outcome is evidence for bias yeah. in the system. I don't hear you wrestle saying that. I'm hearing you saying that it's I think he's too reductionist right. at, at times. You're and, saying and it's, so there's I, evidence for intention and you're not excluding the disparities of outcome. That's one piece of evidence that we need to examine. But you're saying there's evidence for actual intention within people in, in the well, system. Well, or, and I'm saying, and I guess I'll just add this real quick piece and then, Sammy, I'll let you go, is I'm saying that when I understand the history of how the rules were framed, do you realize the word black does not appear in the Constitution, right? Like in, in, in Plessy versus Ferguson and most of the laws that were created intentionally to be racist in most cases, in many, many, many cases, they don't explicitly appeal to racist ideology to justify the decision or even appeal to it all. It's what, you know, oftentimes is referred to as um, in the Southern strategy with Nixon. And so what I'm saying is that that when I understand my understanding of the history of this concept and this term and this issue is that there's always been a cat and mouse game of trying to present a certain type of reality, preference certain people without necessarily feeling bad. Because this is the, where the theology comes in and helps me out. The whole reason for even justifying, you know, uh, or creating racism was to justify slavery, right? So there's something in the human condition that says, I can't just treat you badly and, 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 and with no explanation. I have to come up with some reasons to make it okay to do it. And so... Uh, I'm not just appealing to outcomes like Kendi, but I am saying that those are helpful insights that we can kind of look at and explore and go, man, this is really tragic. Why is it the case that this is happening? Is there some aspect of bias um, in this? In, and sometimes that bias, and this is the last thing I'll say, because I'm talking about structural inequality and not just individuals, sometimes the system does the work for you. I don't even need to like you know, once I put in a, a rule that says, well, you got to come in, you got to come straight from another country that it has to be a, a British, you know, um, you know, part of the British Empire, then I'm already doing things to to circumvent and, and limit who I'm getting there. And that's what it's designed to do. And so I think we have to be aware of that and realize that we have to have a more sophisticated understanding of, 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 of how racism works than not just go. It doesn't just go, hey, I'm being racist. Um, I don't want black people here. It don't usually work that way. So you're saying the psyche that you described at the very beginning, that hasn't completely gone away, that imagination. That's what you're oh. basically, okay. No, not at all. Samuel, a somewhat quick response, because I do want to, we only have a few more minutes. I want you to respond to um, Rasul, and then I really want to ask a question of the, the how, how, bring it back to the church uh, is where I want to go. Like as Christians, okay. even listening on to kind of two different perspectives, how can we move forward as one body of Christ when there's, um, differences of opinion on something that's obviously very personal and 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 has a deep yeah. a deep history. So, so yeah. but but first, Samuel, response to what Rasul was saying. Yeah, again, there's a lot there to unpack, <laughs> and I can't address everything. Um, but you know, what I was trying to say earlier was um, Rasul mentioned the immigration policies in Canada. And again, I'm grateful he mentioned it. Um, you know, a law is a law. Um, you know, so you're if you since you're familiar with this, you know, you mentioned that you don't lecture me. You know, if if you know the law, they know the law. It's as simple as that. Uh, nevertheless, 
the reason why I say we know why they were having those laws is because even though sometimes the laws did not explicitly say they were doing this because of racism, we know what they ran on. We know what they said they wanted to do. We know quotes outside of the law that shows their partiality against um, um, Japanese Canadians or, or black Canadians. So we know that. So then when we know what you said and then you do you know, what you said, even if you're not explicit, we know why you did it, right? Um, so that's true with America. We know that, as you said, slavery did not explicitly say that, you know, that we're doing this because we have partiality against black people. But we know what was happening. We know their quotes. We know their worldview on this. We know what they were doing in Africa. We know all this. We know their views on, 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 um, on, on how they believe the black people were, um, were, um, Less, less equal than, uh, than white people. We know all their views on biology and all that. We know scientific racism. We know all these things. So all their laws, we know where they're coming from. The problem today, this is what I was trying to address, that you've mentioned two studies or, or uh, reports, uh, one in Brooklyn and one in, uh, Har uh, from Harvard. There's still studies. Now, like I said, I do not want to dismiss Racism. I don't know these examples, but it, it, does, it would not surprise me if there were if there were examples of racism within that. The problem is, you you mentioned that it was uh, uh, it was a twelve. They they were studying twelve thousand cases, right? Now the problem is this. Logically, we know you can have an instance where there's five recorded. Because you mentioned the videos on this. I'm, sorry, let me sit down. You mentioned there are videos on this. I'm sure there aren't videos of the 12,000 cases, right? There would be, um, I'm sure, more than one video on it. And again, in that instance, it could be because of racism. It probably is. But we cannot from that then say that this means that all the cases were because of that. It could be, but we just don't know that. And I think in humility, we have to say, look, Maybe in this case there was racism, but may, at least widespread racism, but maybe there isn't, which is why I get back to the issue of disparities. Because when, when you go from addressing an individual or several instances of racism, and then you apply that to a whole, a whole, um, a whole report or to Harvard and everything else, that creates problems. Then the, the main thing we're still resting on is disparities. So, for example... Um, as you mentioned before that you've seen some of my podcast interviews where I mentioned my history with racism in my, at my local school, where I had a teacher who was addressing, um, you know, uh, me being African in a very racist way. He was, he was, uh, <laughs> he was relentless and brutal. Um, he was, you know, mixed from my dark skin. He was, he was uh, um, attacking Africa. Now you mentioned before about internalized racism. Um, you mentioned that, you know, it seemed like he was saying that some Africans believe that when um, Africa is less developed than other nations, it's internalized racism. I don't think so. Unfortunately, Africa is less developed than other nations. That's why myself and my and my and my relative have moved from Africa to come here so we would come into a better nation. But that's not internalized racism. That's just the truth. Nevertheless, of course, attacking me and attacking Africans uh, based on our skin color is racist. So. If I were to use that example, and I also had friends who also had the same uh, experiences too, 
if I use, say, two or three experiences and then to say, you know what? It just happens to be also that in this school, Africans were less likely to um, to to graduate. Then based on those three or four instances, it means that all Africans were being discriminated against at the school without being accurate. It could mean that, but we don't know that. And that's where, again, disparities come in where I say, well, that's not a legitimate legitimate um, evidence of racism. It does not even really support it. It could mean that, but it is not a strong, firm evidence of racism. Uh, can I, Rasul, any quick thoughts? Or do you want me to, I, yeah. I, I want to bring it back to the, how yeah, do we move forward? Now, now. I, can, I, I, can, I can jump in that and, yeah. and, and move forward. Okay. Um, you know, first of all, just to clarify, uh, what I was saying was in my experience, uh, when I, you know, had, um, you know, particularly a classmate from Nigeria and Ethiopia, uh, came to our school at the same time, predominantly black school. And what I was referring to wasn't just that students were saying, ha ha ha, your country is less developed economically than mine. We weren't saying that in middle school. It was African booty scratcher. It was all oh, you, you probably living in trees and huts ignorant statements that way that also reflected when you look back on the way Africa and Africanness has been mm. portrayed throughout American history um, in media, in art, in scholarship, it reflected the idea of white supremacy, which from the very foundation of race, there were these this desire and attempt to categorize scientifically human beings based on racial constructs. The, one of the most recent ones was Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid. And that was very much in order of a sense of superiority that was being claimed by the scientists who were using either skull shape or uh, other observations uh, that they would make to make that case. And I'm saying that there are ways in which we as um, African-Americans to our, you know, to my own shame, I would say, um, but breathe in some of that in terms of our perspective of our own heritage and where we came from and definitely people who are more connected to that. And that's one of the insidious things about white supremacy is that it can cause you to want to disassociate with yourself so that you can be in proximity to it. So I wasn't just referring to to that sense of development, but a much more deeply held imagination about what Africa is as a place and, and people, which I think is a, is a real tragedy. Um, in terms of moving forward in the church and what we need to do, uh, one of the things that I think is important to highlight is this the disparities. And, 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 I, and I think this might help in terms of the issue, because I know we've been taught when I say disparity, um, I, I know that's been a thing of like, hey, Samuel's hitting. That can't be the only indication Obviously, in the case of, you know, crime, you know, or statistics about who's in jail and who's not, there are gender disparities that people aren't arguing is a result of some massive conspiracy to oppress men. Right. So and I would agree, which is why I said I, 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 I depart from Kendi in this point of I think that there's a sometimes a overly simplistic way of looking at it. However, I also said that because oftentimes these things hide in plain sight and are there are other 
explanations that are used to try to, you know, when you look at gentrification and people, you know, um, they're, they're, they're just euphemisms that are often used to say, OK, I don't want this type of person here. I don't want that type of situation without actually expressing expressing it. And that's the history. That's the history, too, that Samuel appealed to. You can just look at what people say behind closed doors. Um, I, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, John er- Ehrlichman, uh, who was. Um, you know, part of President uh, Richard Nixon's, you know, uh, you know, administration and cabinet, he, he mentioned and said the Nixon administration, the campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So this is a quote, you know, you can go Harper's Magazine, 1994, where they give you the aspect of the playbook about why the emphasis on drugs was used in the Nixon administration to discredit uh, critics. But to fast forward to today, um, the Barna Group did an excellent study called Beyond uh, Diversity uh, that was just released a few months ago. And, I, and, and one of the things that I think is important for us as a church is it, 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 one of the points that it made and under the rubric Historically, the U.S. has been oppressive to minorities. So it asked white, black, Hispanic and Asian people to say strongly agree, somewhat agree, neutral, somewhat disagree, strongly disagree. Um, In that category, if you were to look at, you know, whites who responded to the survey, only 14 percent said that they strongly agreed, you know, with that statement. Historically, has the U.S. has been oppressive to minorities. In contrast, if you look at the combined, like, you know, the black population is 44 percent that strongly agree, 31 percent that somewhat agree. So you put that together, you're, you're looking at a disparity of between 75 percent to um, about 30, you know, 2 percent of 40 percent about looking at that issue. And time and time again, when we looked at this, when, when Barna looked at the statistics, what they saw was that white Christians were more likely to blame different outcomes on personal behavior of black people, black people were more likely to associate, and I'm saying dramatically so, um, with ongoing discrimination. So I think one of the things that just is a a, a basic um, question to me is when you look at this study, if I'm coming at this from a person who's not experienced what it's meant to be black in America, Mm -hmm. I might want to listen to what the majority of African-Americans are saying about their experience. That might give me better insight into what's happening than simply my own point of reference when I am removed from that situation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that listening to those stories, wrestling with that, those accounts. um, And again, look at that beyond diversity study and the insights there is pretty striking. And even when it comes to solutions in the church, um, there's differences of, of perspective about what to do uh, and, uh, about the scenario. And I think that if we were to listen to those who are primarily impacted by racism, who are saying, hey, we have a problem here, mm-hmm. then I think our understanding of it, if we're not coming from that standpoint, can be really shaped by looking at statistically, not everybody, because everybody is different, just like Samuel and I have different views. But I think that there is a statistical resonance to 80 percent of a group of people saying this is a problem and then and another group's 25 percent saying this is a problem. So let me let me stand in for the prime predominantly white, let's just say more conservative evangelical church. 
So I'm, right. I want you to speak to me as kind of representative, not that I personally do sure. represent sure. all of that. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, but let's just say, would that be your main plea is, hey, for us to move forward as one body, um, a diverse body in this very polarized situation we're in, and the race conversation is part of that polarization, throw politics in there, throw, I mean, we can even, sexuality questions and stuff, but would that be your main kind of encouragement is, hey, uh, please just listen to your black brothers and sisters in their, in their lived experience. Would that be a, a big part of it? Well, um, I would say my first, my first paradigm is to change the understanding of how racism primarily is defined from an individual mistreating another individual to understanding that in the American context, mm-hmm. if you just go through, look at history, that the primary emphasis of racism has been the um, marginalization of one group of people mm-hmm. um, by another group of people and a desire to maintain that that caste system. Mm-hmm. And, and that that is something that needs to be confronted and, addre- and addressed. Now, it so happens that, and again, I'm not trying to, I, I, I believe that that is true. And it also bears reference that most people who look like me, who would be the primary mm-hmm. experts in saying, hey, this has been a problem, also agree that 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 this issue is is more systemic than it is about individual behavior and that it is about you know um personal life choices that are bad and so uh, i would say yeah i would say that was the first thing is just change the mindset about how racism works and what it is but then i definitely would also encourage folks to 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 look at those statistics and look at what the majority of african americans who live in this country and have to experience have to say about it um, and, 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 and that, that would be a primary, uh, sense of insight. And then the last thing would be sacrificing comfort. Um, I, I think that, um, even in this conversation, you know, it's sometimes difficult to disagree or to say something that someone might be offended by, but I think that we have to deal with it in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, you know, the Holy Spirit and, uh, the word and, and, and our, um, understanding of how do we, of the, of the sanctification process gives us, uh, a lot of what we need um, to that process. Can I, yeah, and uh, Samuel, I'm sure you got a lot to say. Um, I'm just gonna be completely honest. Like I, I'm, I'm really wrestling with all this, and and you know, and you're trying to read across across the board different things. Um, and so when I when I read, for instance, Thomas Sowell, and I know you know you either love him or you hate him. I like he makes a lot of really like really compelling cases for why the disparity is there. But then sometimes I'm like, you know, I hear people say, well, that's just because you're white. That's why you like him. I'm like, well, at least wrestle with the content of what he's saying. It's kind of like, to me, it almost sounds racist to say there's nothing in the content of what this really bright guy's saying. It's just because I'm white. I like, I'm not searching for like, I don't think I'm searching for, Oh, I want to like this want to like that. But like, you know, he gives a very different, um, explanation for why there are disparities um like how is that okay for me to like like you know he says like like the african-americans were better off in 1940 than they are now and that if you control for age geography and family home single dual parent like the disparities basically go away um yeah and that and and when i read that i look at all the stuff he says i'm like okay what's the counter argument i'll go to kendy and he doesn't even address it or even acknowledge it that's a another thing to address. And, um, 
even like you know the 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 you know this the name study you know where you, if you have like an African sounding name you know you're you're not getting as many jobs. I read another thing that said like well if somebody has a very Asian sounding name, the same discrimination was there, and yet yeah, no, the Asian community are more well off than even the white community. So I don't know. I, I'm just I'm really sorting. I'm, I, as I try to read both sides of all this, I'm just super disoriented. And my main heart is like yeah, I want the body to be one. I want us to address whatever racism is there. I I, I you know, so I, I just need some pastoring here on how, as a white guy, you know, I'm kind of like tiptoeing around this, like, oh man, I just, I want to do the right thing. I truly want to model Jesus in this really volatile conversation. I feel like I, ignoring it's the worst thing to do, but as I step in, I'm like, in certain contexts, if I don't say this or say that or read this or don't agree with that, then I'm seen as part of the problem. And it's, it's, I just feel handcuffed a little bit. Samuel, I don't know. Yeah, I, maybe I, so, I, I, I don't know if, you went, sure if you're asking me. Or yeah, let me see. I, I haven't let you talk in a while. So, Samuel, yeah, you jump in there and, and then Rasul, I would love to hear your thoughts on that too. And, and then I do, I yeah. got another person waiting for me for another podcast. So we do got to wrap it up. Yeah. I, um, well, let, let me say this real quick because I do think my perception in, in my world, kind of moderate evangelical, mostly white, but f- more diverse than the average evangelical circles. Like, this is, I think this is what we are wrestling with like we want to do the right thing we see differences of opinion and we're just yeah we're just kind of feel a little stuck you know um so yeah samuel help me out here yeah as you mentioned um by referencing thomas Sowell, there are a lot of problems with the disparity argument even if we're not making the disparity argument the only argument right although I which russell's not the yeah. primary argument that is used um the issue with it is there historically as, as you said uh, even as not just 1940s, 19, 1960s, right? The head of the civil rights movement. You had a, uh, you had, um, um, I, I, it's weird to say it this way, but you had more parity between black Americans and white Americans than you do now. What I mean by that is you have that over the last 50 years, the racial disparities have been getting worse and worse, right? So based on the argument that, not, I know it's not his only argument, but Based on that uh, that um, that stat, you'd have to believe then that it means that racism is getting worse, right? When I would say, well, no, it's it's not. But um, you know, going back to what I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't want to ignore what you were saying, um, Mr. Sprinkle, but you know, Razul was saying earlier about listening to Black Americans and listening to or Black Christians, and we should. But we should also listen to, and I know he would also agree with this, all black Christians. Also, let's listen to all white Christians as well. See, in the same way that the majority of black Christians would say that um, that they've been victims of racism or more particularly systemic racism, well, you'd also have a lot of white Christians or white evangelicals who would say, well, they're victims of slander and false accusation as well. So let's listen to both groups as well. The majority does not does, does not have a monopoly on truth, right? A majority of people can be wrong. So for example, right, historically, a majority of white people uh, in America, including some um, white Christians, were in the wrong with their views when it came to racism or slavery. The majority does not prove or dismiss anything. So we should listen to both groups, listen to black people, listen to, listen to white people, listen to everybody. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, listen to the word of God. I don't want it to be missed here. What does it mean to be racist? What is racism? Racism is partiality. 
biblically, that's what it is. Racism is just a erased base form of partiality. Therefore, if we are going to say that there is systemic racism, then it means that there is systemic partiality against black people or non-white people. So we have to be very, very firm in, uh, in uh, defining that in, in that biblical way. Um, you know, so that's what I would say for that right now. And then maybe Rizul can uh, reply and then we can get yeah. back to what Let you were saying. Ask real quick, Samuel, if you get because uh, at the risk of giving the mic back. But <laughs> how would you define race? There is in terms of racism or race, 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 that um, it is simply people who are uh, made in the image of God, uh, people who are descendants of Adam. If you mean like the human like human race is all no, people I mean, like in the context of talking about race. Cis, right? Like race, like what race somebody is, white, black, Asian, whatever. How okay. do you define what race is? Yeah. So the reason why I mentioned it is because I reject the term, you know, race based on different groups of people. But if you mean ethnicity, then I would say that ethnicity. No, I'm saying when we, well, there is a thing called race that exists as a concept in the world. Yes. How do you define that concept? But I'm saying I disagree with that concept. Right, right, right. You disagree with the validity of the concept, but you don't disagree that it exists in the world, right? In what way do you mean? That people have something in mind that there are books written about what we've been talking about the whole time. Like that there is a thing that exists out there that people have in their mind a, a mental image of when they say what when they say race, like, a uh, you know, check a box, like what okay, they mean. So, okay. I'm asking you, how do you define that? So in the world people would define race as people with different features, humans with different features, right? And I'm saying, no, I disagree with that. That is scientific racism, I disagree with that. I do not believe that we should be making distinctions amongst people yeah, based okay. on their right. skin color. Right, right, right. I, I think um, th th maybe that's a, a yeah. helpful point of departure in terms of just understanding where some of our, our, our gap is, um, that I am, dis I, so first, fact one, I agree that there is no biological basis of race, that race is a foreign concept to the scriptures, that uh, there's the Imago Dei principle, there's that sense of ethnos, um, you know, or goyim in, you know, in the, in the Hebrew, uh, ethnos in the Greek, which talks about nations as people, not ge geopolitical boundaries, but types of people, right? Ashanti, you know, Fanti, that kind of thing, right? To, to, to shout out Ghana. So, <laughs> Um, the, so, so that's what we mean by ethnicity. What I am saying is that part of what the, we have to really understand is that the particular story of race in our consciousness is a particular story that came out of a certain imagination, a certain way of looking at groups of people that, um, that informed meaning into those categories and that created structures to support the meaning that was infused into those categories. So the very fact of the matter that we agree that it's not a real thing actually supports how pernicious it is that this is, we've been spending so much time talking about it. But um, so in any case, that, that's, I, I just wanted to, you know, so I think that that's an important historical concept. That's why I started with the aspect that this is something very unique in particular. This is not ethnicity. This is not culture. This is something very unique that has emerged over the last 500 plus years. Um, but the second point to, to, to ask about the Thomas Sowell 
and just kind of what to do with the fact that people have different points of reference and points of view. And, and I happen to agree that, um, you know, with Samuel that, you know, we shouldn't just look to listen for confirmation bias. Right. And I think that is also accurate to say that just because a majority uh, accepts a position doesn't make it naturally correct. I think that, though, it's important to talk about a majority of people's lived experiences is different than talking about a majority of people's biased perceptions. So when you use the example of, you know, if I go back to 1850 and do a straw poll and say, you know, among white Christians and say, hey, are black people, you know, equal to whites? And I see 90 percent say, no, they're not. And I go, well, then therefore I must conform my idea to that. That's a totally different process than asking if I take a straw poll of slaves and say, hey, slaves, people who are in slavery, how many of you would like to be free? And 95 percent say I would like to be free and have my own land, that that should inform the way that I hear the story that was given to me from white slave owners that were saying they're happy in this condition. They like it in this way. Same thing in segregation, where it was the whole mythology of King as being this outside agitator who was stirring up the good Negroes who liked the who liked and uh, appreciated the, the social segregation that was there. But then when you talk to them individually and did a straw poll, you would see that that was not the case. So what I'm saying is it is important to actually hear. It's one thing to say I don't agree with a whole group of people who, who have a viewpoint about society or the world that I disagree with. It's another thing to say there's 85 percent of people saying that they've experienced racism in a structural or systemic way. And I'm rejecting that because I don't agree. Those are two different types of things. And so I think, yeah, it's important to listen. And then the one last thing, particularly to go on soul, is I am a social scientist by uh, trade. Mm -hmm. my, de my degree was in sociology and African-American studies. Mm -hmm. One of the disappointing things that I find is that because in the Christian space, there's not a high value of social sciences in specialty in these categories. People just lump anybody in who talks about it. And I'm going to be real with it, especially if they have a black face and they tend to agree with them, then they get even more cosigns usually. And what I'm saying is that. I respect Thomas Sowell as an intellectual, the brothers, you know, uh, you know, pedigree, you know, and, and, and institutional, you know, knowledge is, is, is exceptional. And at the same time, I'm going to say as a as an intellectual, as an academic, he's an econ, 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 economic, he's, a, um, yeah. he's an economics focus. That's the, 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 all the theories about social sociology and race and social construction. The, the, that's not his specialty. So I wouldn't go to an econ, um, economist. To, to, to get to bear and frame my understandings of race in the same way that I wouldn't go to a theologian to try to understand eco economics. I think it's a two different things that oftentimes get conflated mm -hmm. because we don't have enough of an appreciation of the unique role. And one last thing I'll say, W.E.B. Du Bois changed the game. In 1900, he did a survey called the Philadelphia Negro. Up until that point, the primary theory and explanation that people had for social disparities among black people and white people were that black people were just, you know, uh, inferior. They had bad character. Their families were in tatters. And and that's because even back in 1900, when Du Bois did that survey, uh, black people were three times as likely to have single parent homes than white people were in 1900. And that disparity had been around since 1880, since they first started taking these tests. Yeah, hmm. that those disparities being twice, three times as much has, has, has been true. And yet 
Du Bois, what he did was he studied and he walked around South Philly and he did his anthropological research and he started to show how there were structural instances of how um, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, how all of these factors contributed to the erosion of what he saw around him of the society. And that was really the birth of sociology in America. And I think that that's an important tool and aspect that a lot of times in the Christian world that we just undervalue and underappreciate. A lot there, man. Uh, I really got to wrap this up. I got somebody waiting on the line, but Samuel, let's just uh, two minutes or less, your uh, encouragement slash challenge for the church in this conversation, then I'll pass it back to you, Rasul, and then we'll close this out. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Because we're um, not going to, there's so much out here. We're just not going to be able to solve yeah. it. So more of like, okay, people listening to this saying, gosh, I'm hearing maybe good sides on each, from each one of you. Maybe I'm probably, I'm sure people are siding more, more with one or the other, but like, let's just set aside for a second all the facts, data, studies, how should the church respond after listening to kind of two representatives here? Yeah, as always, there's a lot to say there, and I only have a couple of minutes to address it all, but I'll just try to summarize the key points here. Um, I think it's interesting that Mr. Berry um, mentioned that, you know, or claimed that uh, since Thomas Sowell is an economist and not a social scientist, then that he does not have quite the specialty or expertise to address this issue. What I find interesting is since racism is a sin, the person that is most, um, who's an expert or has a specialty in this issue is God himself. So I'm mentioning that to say more than economists, more than social scientists, more than anybody, more than Mr. Berry, more than myself, more than you, Mr. Sprinkle, the authority, the authority on racism, the authority on sin and righteousness is God himself. And we need to make sure that if we are going to understand racism, if we're going to define a sin, if we're going to know how to respond to a sin, let's go immediately to the scriptures, right? And quickly, the point about who to listen to, we need to be very careful. We can call it a viewpoint, we can call it lived experiences. Ultimately, God calls us to show no partiality against the rich or the poor, against the great or the small. A black person's view is not more, um, it's not, does, does not carry more weight than a white person's uh, view on this issue. We all should be showing no partiality to both groups. We only need to go to the word of God and submit to what it says on racism and what it says, what it says on partiality. I don't only have a couple of minutes, so I'll, I'll end there. Okay. Yeah. yeah Rasul. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll also uh, honor the time. Thank you again for the d- discussion and, and Samuel yeah. for engaging with me. Um, I think that, um, it is important for us to, to lean into conversations that we don't typically have. And I think that, um, God is the ultimate authority. I find it interesting that that seems to come up. It feels like there's a, a correction that is being made to what I'm sharing in, in light of that, bringing that up. I don't know if that's the case, but that's how it feels like, you know, it's like, yep, but we got to go appeal to ultimately to God. And I think that it's important to uh, convey that as, as believers, um, there's a mystery aspect to trying to understand the complexities of society and life. And, and read the scriptures and allow those to, um, to help us to come to those conclusions and that we can people can can be sincerely doing that process and come up with different conclusions. Um, and I, I think somebody is right. Somebody is wrong. But but I think that it might be a better it might be a good approach for us to <laughs> begin to examine how we come to the theological conclusions um, as, as opposed to just appealing to, you know, 
the sense of like, well, God said it. It's like, well, I'm not saying God didn't say it. I'm just saying that I agree. I think God's saying something different than you did. Um, and uh, and so anyhow, um, I, I, I would just encourage people to to lean in uh, to conversations. But also, I think um, while nobody is one arbiter of truth, I, I would say that in the same way that if I wanted to try to understand the, these, the realities of sexual assault and rape, which predominantly you know, affect uh, women, and if I'm trying to understand that reality, it might be helpful whether the person's a boy or a girl, a male or a female, it, listen to what that experience is like and, and in a way of forming my understanding of how society should respond as opposed to just sitting myself somewhere in a, in a Bible and reading it and then saying, okay, close a book, thus says the Lord, because I think the biblical framework is that we uh, ought, ought to be curious and learn from each other and that God has given other people insights, especially from their experiences, to be able to shape what it is. And I think Solomon did that, you know what I mean, um, as he reigned and ruled and, and, and listened to what uh, his constituents and, and whatnot as the kind of wisest man ever. And so I would just encourage us to lean into that wisdom and, uh, and continue to have hard conversations, but also to, um, you know, to step outside of our comfort zone um, and, and to allow those things to shape us. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for being on the show. A lot to think about. Uh, yeah. Amen and amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks All for right. having us. No. All right.